Hello and God's peace. Welcome to episode six of our podcast. I am your host, Pastor Nicholas Candle of New York Mills, Minnesota. And today we're going to be talking about the Apostles' Creed. There's an old legend that says that on the day of Pentecost, each apostle, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, gave one article of the creed. Now, there's different ways to divide it. We divide it into three articles, but there's another way to divide it into 12. And so each one of them would have said something like, um, maybe Peter starts out and says, um, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then John says, um, I believe in Jesus Christ. And someone else says his only son, um, and so on and so forth. And you have the Apostles' Creed. Now, that's likely um, just a legend, so it's probably not true. But with all legends and myth, there's, myths, there's usually a kernel of truth um, that is pretty telling. So, for example, you've all heard of Santa Claus, the jolly red guy who brings gifts to children. Well, Santa Claus, spoiler alert, plug your kids' ears if this is not something you're ready for them to hear. Uh, he's not real. Um, however, there did exist a man named, he had a really good name, actually. His name was Nicholas, and he was a bishop, I believe, in the early church. He was referred to as St. Nicholas, and it turns out he was just a very generous pastor. And so that's where the Santa, Santa Claus myth arises from. And so it's likely similar with the Apostles' Creed. I mean, I should say it is. Because though this very likely wasn't given directly from the apostles, it does reflect their teaching. And so to be talking about this today, we're joined by Pastor Phil Wilson of the Hawkinson Congregation. He is the uh, senior pastor there. And we're also joined by Denton Holmgren. Jamin got a little younger. He's in Hawaii, so we replaced him with his younger brother. And Denton is also a member of, is a, is a member of the Hawkinson Congregation. So thanks for joining us, Denton and Phil. How are you guys today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Pastor Nicholas and Denton. Good to see you. Um, yeah, doing well. I woke up all, all ready and raring to go, so let's let's do it. Yeah, I'm doing well. Um, glad to be here. It's an interesting topic, and uh, it's good to see you, Phil, and you, Nick, as well. Yeah, well, thank you. Good, to, good to ha Surely good to have you guys. Um, so, Phil, we usually begin by uh, interviewing the guest pastor. So I'd like to ask you, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your upbringing, your family, um, things like that? Sure. Um, born and raised in a small farming community in Minnesota. I was um, Kimball, Minnesota. My um, probably the similar upbringing as any other family in the in the middle of Minnesota, the farming community, except for the fact that my dad was a preacher. Uh, he was a pastor for 34 years in the Kingston congregation and uh, not a full-time pastor, but I saw him do everything that a pastor has to do, preaching and baptisms and funerals and weddings and going out in the middle of the night to visit somebody who um, on their deathbed and hospital visits, spending time as a young kid in, in hospitals and nursing homes as he's preaching and, and visiting the, the sick. So that was my, that was my youth. Um, served in the army for three years after I got out of high school and served in the, on the East coast during peacetime, never saw any activity or anything like that. Thanks to God. Uh, went to college afterwards and sort of floundered around, didn't really know what I wanted to do. 
ended up um, after quite a few years, uh, maybe four years of college, getting a two-year degree. So I spent a little bit of the, <laughs> of the, um, of your money going on the GI Bill, floundering around and wondering what I was going to do. Got a degree in computer programming and was working at a grocery store at the time and, and was put in charge of their brand new computer system. You guys now, you just go to, you know, this, this stuff is, sounds uh, dark ages to you, but we first got a scanner in the store when I was working there and I was in charge of that, of that um, computer system, database system. Um, during this time, I met a gal and um, Gwen, my wife, she's a Hillman, was born in Alberta, raised in British Columbia. We were married and um, the rest is history. We have six children, 16 grandchildren, and I've lived out here in Washington since um, 1981. So I'm almost a Washingtonian, almost rid myself of the Minnesotan that still courses through my veins a little bit. Yeah, it's almost like maybe you're transferring it to me because I feel I'm becoming more and more of a Minnesotan by the day. And less and less of a Washingtonian. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Um, what's crazy is I got invited ice fishing my first winter here. And um, the guy I went with was... Um, he almost laughed when I got out of the car because I was just wearing like a hoodie and a, and I wasn't really dressed for the weather. And then about two years ago, I went fishing with him again and I had bib overalls on and a nice winter jacket. And he's like, okay, you look like a Minnesotan now. Um, <laughs> but I got bibs. a pretty, I got a pretty funny story um, about your dad. Um, uh, maybe it's not that funny, but I think it's funny. But um, I heard that when Mills needed a new pastor, um, they called him and asked him to come and he said, no, but he said, you can have George. He's like, why don't you have my little brother? And um, so he sent him, he sent, so I don't know if Oscar actually sent him or what, but George ended up coming and ended up serving here for like um, 28 years or something like that. And um, was just, it became a pillar of the community and um, it ended up working out really well, but it was kind of humorous that your dad wasn't able to make it, but he uh, sent sent the little brother, kind of like what Jamin did this episode. Sent yeah. sent, sent the second best, huh? Yeah. No, I, I'm just kidding <laughs> on that one. Yeah, George is my uncle. Oscar's my dad. So I'm very, you know, well known for the for the older people among us. You know, you ask somebody younger than 40 years old or so, and they probably don't remember them. But but um, you know, the older older people obviously do. So mm -hmm. being that Denton uh, probably has never, Denton's not on here and maybe people don't know him. Denton, could you give us a little info about you? Yeah. So I am also a pastor's son, Pastor Ron, of course, um, and brother to Jamin. So similar upbringing to him. Um, yeah, I am basically went through life normally until I was 16. Then I got diagnosed with cancer, had a bit of a road bump there for like three and a half years. And then I got out of that, worked under Jamin for a while, um, and then kind of bounced around a bit. And I'm here now. So, yeah. So Denton actually um, got, uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Worldview Everlasting. Um, he actually got a shout out from Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Right. And so that was, that was a pretty, pretty neat moment. I might, I'll put that video in the description where he uh, prays for Denton Holmgrim. Mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> but um yeah that was kind of a scary time for for all of us you know those things come up and it's it just comes out of left field and you don't really know what to do with it mm -hmm. but i'm thankful that you're with us now yeah so phil how did you become a pastor well what what happens 
quite often here in, in Hawkinson is, is um, the, a pastor or a preacher, I suppose you could say, first sort of comes up through the ranks of, uh, in the Sunday school. I was Sunday school superintendent and some of the uh, ministers, we didn't have pastors at that time. There were just, we had six or seven ministers who shared the pulpit and they would come and listen to the Sunday school opening message. And I guess that's sort of where they, they found out that I could put two or three words together. And pretty soon I was asked to be a minister. I was, I was first asked in 1997. So I've been preaching since 1997, just right before my 40th birthday. I remember that. Whoops. I just gave you my age. If you do the right. math quickly, you could figure out how old I am, but you're docs. But, do you want to also give us the last four digits of your social, your favorite yeah, pet's name, sure. <laughs> the, the year of your first car? <laughs> oh yeah okay I'll, I'll do that later we'll we'll put that down in the comments below yeah we'll put that and, in the show yeah. notes yeah we don't yeah, want to just okay. advertise it very good um so i i was a very busy uh minister for for quite a few years i think denton could probably remember how it was with his dad mm. um or maybe not denton you're you, you know when your dad was was still um excavating and digging ditches and preaching at the same time. I don't know if you remember that time or not. You were pretty young. I was, yeah, I yeah. was pretty young, mm -hmm. but. but I was working at new tradition homes. I was, I was, uh, I loved my job, satisfied with my job. And I was being called to go to many places. You know, the, I was the new puppy on the block, you know, and everybody wanted to hear me. And, and so I would, I was, I was traveling a lot and I was getting, I was getting burnt out and, I was asked to serve as a, as a pastor, an associate pastor here to Pastor Ron Holmgren, Denton's dad, in 2004 or so. And I resisted for a couple of years. And then in 2006, I accepted the call to the pastorate here in, in Hawkinson. So it's, it's been 15 years now. Did you ever, this is just a question that's popping into my head. Did you ever help out with the confirmation classes before you were a pastor? Y yes, I did. Uh, Pastor Ron called me in a couple times just to, because he was getting tired, probably, you know, two weeks of teaching yeah. the kids all by himself. And, and he would call me in and I'd have a session. I probably did that only a couple times. Um, you know, he probably had me come in and talk, you know, you know, speak a little bit on the Lord's prayer or whatever, whatever. It might yeah. Have been. I feel and, like when and, in 2003, when I got confirmed, I feel like you were a part of it. I, I could have been, I could have been, or, or, you know, he could have had something that, that he had to do. And I even took his place, but I do remember being there with him a couple of times before I, I started uh, full-time with him. Oh, cool. So maybe your memory is okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's yeah. good to know. Yeah. Um, so were there any, um, pastors that had a special influence on you or that were very helpful or sure. Sure. I, I, I should say, or I could say my dad, but really he didn't have any, I, you know, I, he died when I was 25 years old. And I, you know, a 25 year old kid, you know, Denton, you're closest to that. And you, you mm -hmm. sort of know what, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not, I'm not accusing you Denton, but, but some, you know, I just wasn't really that serious. I was, I was yeah. a believer, you know, I never denied my faith. I just wasn't that serious in matters of Christianity. So I'd visit with my dad, talk with him, but it wasn't like I, we spoke theological, um, subjects with each other. But when I first started preaching here, um, uh, Carl Nimitalo, uh, uh, let's see. Um, Arnie Nordahl was here. Uh, Richard Barney then became the pastor just a couple years after I began preaching. I think it was about the year 2000 or, or 97, right around the same time, actually. It probably was 1997. So they had a, 
they had an influence on me. Yeah, they did. But um, in, in latter years, if I can go into my latter years, I, when I became associate pastor here, uh, call it pride or whatever, but I did not want to be associated with Pastor Ron as his understudy. You know, that people would say, oh, you're just mimicking or parroting right. what, what Pastor Ron is saying. So I, I began to visit quite a bit with other uh, ministers and pastors in the area. One of them, um, Nathan Jutman, he was in Vancouver at the time, um, had, a, had a big influence on my, on my life. Uh, Gene Mixon, Mark Matson, others in the area that I visit with, my cousin Tom Lappy. Uh, just just visiting with with other ministers and speakers and 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 on various subjects had a it was in a growth period in my life you might say and and those were the ones who I gathered around. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating to me how people can rub off on you without even really you knowing it because and, and I think I think about like you and Ron at least from my observation you guys have had a very special close relationship. And uh, I think your goal of trying to avoid uh, being his understudy didn't wasn't quite as successful as you thought it was. Oh, definitely. You know that, and it, I, I should have mentioned that. You know that it it came around, it circled back. That's sort of a new term, you know, nowadays. <laughs> Circle, we circled back, and and yeah, Ron and I had a had a wonderful working relationship, and and we we shared in a lot of things, and I think. Uh, from listening to him on the podcast, you know, was, was it number one or number two way back? Um, he, he had a similar experience, sort of a growth experience and while he was a pastor. And I had the same thing. You know, I mm -hmm. came in wet behind the ears, didn't really know much about, well, I shouldn't say that. I, you know, it, it's just, I thought I knew a lot. And then I had to learn. And uh, Pastor Ron, of course, was, was there, was, was, was a huge part of my of my um, life in the latter years. Oh yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I remember um, I, I kind of had that same attitude, you know, you go to seminary and it was kind of funny at one of the sem rallies, I think it was when I graduated, um, they asked, um, so what'd you learn or something? And all of us were like, uh, we learned that the more, you know, the less, you know, <laughs> you know, that the more you learn, sure. the less you realize you don't know or mm -hmm, however mm -hmm. you're supposed to. Right. That right. Mm-hmm. But the way we kind of do it in our church is I think this is a pretty common experience for pastors is that um, they go from, you know, you went from the you you said you were doing um, were you do, drawing for Nutrad or? Yes, I was I was in charge of the design department. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you went mm -hmm. from the drafting chair to the uh, ministry chair and uh, you kind of get thrown into the fire there. Right. Right. You know, preaching is one thing. Um, and then I, I used, I've told people that, that I, a little bit off the subject here, maybe from what we're talking about, but I think it, it pertains. Uh, and I, I follow the, the lectionary quite closely now uh, because it, it, it allows, I, I'm allowed the time to spend in that text that I'm not familiar with. Before I was a pastor, I would spend a lot of time looking for a text that I was very familiar with and very little time in the text. Right. Okay. So, so I, I, I was, I was so busy working that I didn't really have the time to spend in, in the word, like, like I do now. And I think that's common for a lot of people who are working. Carl Nimitel, there's stories of him living in La Grande, Oregon, Eastern Oregon, and driving all the way to your roots, both of your roots there in uh, Seal River 
in Washington, Nacelle, Washington, preaching a sermon and driving all the way back to LaGrande. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying Carl was never prepared, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's a different thing than, than, um, than many of us are, are used to now who are able to spend time in the word as you are pastor Nick. Right. Yeah. And, um, one of the things that shocked me, I, I became a pastor quite a bit younger. I was 25 or 26, but, um, it was hard for me to uh, to get used to just the um, like like if it was just preaching on Sunday morning that would be one thing but you know I I got about a year before I had to do a funeral and then all of a sudden you're at people's bedsides when they're when they're going through some of the hardest last moments of their life and that kind of responsibility and pressure was. Um, was pretty intimidating. Now it's something that um, I feel a lot more equipped to deal with. And um, I feel like the Lord still provides. He provided then and he provides now. But um, it, that, that was the thing that really kind of like was like, whoa, this is a lot more. There's a lot more to this than I thought. And you always know that that stuff will come up, but you just don't know what it's going to feel like. Mm-hmm. So, Phil, um, I'm curious as to, I guess, one quick thing, um, the lectionary, I'm assuming, if I remember right, is the uh, kind of the systematic cyclical where you have a, a text every day or week or something like that. Um, is there a process that you go through besides that when choosing a text or do you just stick to that for the most part? Um, yeah. How does that look? Yeah, f- for, th- for the most part, I, I stick to that lectionary and the collection of texts is called a pericope it's a, there's an old testament reading a psalm reading a new testament and a gospel this coming sunday palm sunday if you have a if you have a, a, a calendar of some sorts you'll see that there's a lot of different texts the the, the procession texts uh, gospel texts and so on um, but yeah i i typically just look at one of those texts and it'll be um, one of the three I, I very very rarely speak from a psalm but an Old Testament uh, epistle or gospel, typically, um, I, I lean more towards the gospels. One of the reasons, too, that works out well for us here in Hawkinson is most often on Sundays, we have two sermons. There'll be one in the morning and then one in the afternoon or evening. And the, the ministers who serve in the afternoon or evening will always ask the morning speaker, which is the pastor. Now it'll be Pastor Paul Matson or, or me. We share the pulpit in the morning and they will ask us which text you are taking so there there's a not stumbling upon each other's or taking each other's text we 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 talk with each other beforehand and they said yes i think i'm going to take the epistle text from romans and they say okay i'll take the gospel so it's sort of it it, it sort of we we cover each other that way as far as not taking each other's texts but i think the the main reason for me denton is that i don't want to pick my pet texts. You know, I would preach from Hebrews. When I was first began preaching, I preached from Hebrews all the time, whether or not I understood Hebrews or not. I loved the flow and the, the, whatever, the poetry, whatever that you found in Hebrews. And I would preach from it. Well, this forces me into texts that I really am not comfortable with. And therefore it forces me into the word. Yeah. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. But there are times where, as a pastor, you get called somewhere um, for special services. You have to preach at the convention, or you, um, like what happened to me, you're sitting in church and somebody tells you during the song that uh, they'd like for you to speak. 
um, and you have three minutes to decide what text you're going to talk about. Is there a, is there a process that you have from that? Or do you just kind of go with what's comfortable? You know, I, I have the benefit of having a few sermons on the shelf. Yep. It really is. You know, I'll, if, if nothing else, I, and this is, I'm not, um, whatever, stretching the truth here or anything, I'm going to go to first Peter chapter one. You know, it's just the text that I'm so familiar with and I just love it. And if that's my go-to, if I, if I'm in a, in a crunch yeah, you know? we, we and, and there are others too, of course, but that first Peter chapter one, that's the one that's going to come to mind right away. Yeah. And by on the shelf, I think what Phil means is that he, um, he has t- texts that he has prepared for and, um, preached and, um, done it enough that he remembers and, sure. and not, not even like, I'm sure if I were to listen to, if I were to go into the Hawkinson archives and look at every sermon that you preached on first Peter chapter one, they wouldn't be all the same. No, no. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's, it is nice having, um, you know, when you've been a pastor for as many years as you have, and even I'm finding as many years as I have it, it almost seems like when I'm preparing for a sermon, I'm not even necessarily preparing for the next one I'm going to preach. But it seems like each one just adds to the library of um, information that I'll be pulling from for the next sermon. Where um, mm-hmm. and so it, and it's really marvelous how you know you'll preach on a text two years ago, and uh, as you're doing preparation for another one, something will pop into your head, and I'll, you'll be like, "Wasn't there something?" Yeah, I think this connects, and it, it's just fascinating how the more you do it, the more those connections are made, and it's it's just a wonderful gift that the Lord gives us in His Spirit. Mm-hmm. So who's your favorite church father or theologian, Phil? Well, you know, as, as you sent me some these questions and I was looking at them and I thought, wow, I I am not going to embarrass myself by saying, I know something about Irenaeus or Origen or Polycarp. (laughs) I just love that name. Multi-fish, many fish. Isn't that what Polycarp (laughs) means? Yeah. Um, Augustine or something. And I'm, I I am not a student of patristics. I just not. I, I remember quite a few years ago, Pastor Ron and I had a had a um, seminar. Nick, you were probably even there. I don't know. It was at Firm Foundation Christian School, and we had a, a, a seminar on, on patristics. And we went all, through all of these well-known church fathers, and I had to I had to rely on I had no idea on any of this stuff. So th- thanks to um, Wikipedia's and encyclopedias and so on and so forth, I was a- a- able to actually know when these people lived. So I, I'm just not drawn to the to the early fathers. I I just I couldn't say I have the Confessions of Augustine on my on my bookshelf, and I love the binding of it. It's just a real old <laughs> classic looking book, and I've never opened it. You know, and that's one that you're just supposed to read as a pastor. You have to read the Confessions of Augustine. Have you read it, Nick? I feel like I have, but if you asked me what's in there, I would know it's something about, (laughs) like he mentioned his mother a lot. Okay. That was the sense that I got. So the, the theologians that I, you know, that I've followed, I mean, I don't, I, I really appreciate guys like, um, I guess they're probably latter theologians, Bonhoeffer, you know, I really enjoyed him. I wouldn't say he's a, he's not an early church father, obviously. I was visiting with, with um, Paul Matson yesterday. He's wondering what books he should get for his, for his library as he begins his, his um, time as a pastor here. And I, I showed him my American edition of, of Luther's works and Lenker's edition. And I said, I don't typically read a, you know, just pick it up and read from cover to cover, but I'll read a sermon of his, that, that type of thing, you know, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, it's not like I read Luther all day long. 
Yeah, some some modern day um, theologians that I've come to love um, there, and then this is I can plug his podcast. But there's a um, I don't know if he's still a pastor, but he was a pastor for many years, and he was he was also the director of worship for the Missouri Synod. But his name is William Whedon. Sure, and mm-hmm. he has a podcast called "The Word of the Lord Endures Forever." Yep, and yep. it's about um, I think he has a, something up there almost every day. And he go, he's just going through a text and he has about 15 minutes where he'll read a text and talk a little bit about it. And I've just loved it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I listened to that um, religiously up until um, it, it, he was going through the Gospel of John. That was his, the first thing that he the first book that he covered in that podcast. And I was listening to it every day until March 6th, 2020. That's the day that. Um, my daughter-in-law and granddaughter were, were killed in a car accident and everything just sort of my, my regular routine of life went upside down. And, um, I've caught glimpses of art glimpses. I've caught portions of, I think he's maybe in Hebrews or somewhere now. I don't, I don't know where he's at right now, but I've listened to him periodically, but, but not like I did in the beginning. Oh, he's an exciting guy to listen to. Will Whedon is another uh, Missouri Synod guy that I listen to a lot is Brian Wolfmiller. He has many different, um, uh, YouTube channels of various things, Sunday Drive Home, um, Table Talk Radio, various things, um, s- snippets of theological nuggets. Yeah, that, yeah. That he, but, uh, I, I've actually met Brian Wolfmuller, and he's as genuine and kind and, and bright in person as he is on his YouTube channel. He, was, hmm. he really wow. made me feel like I was an uh, yeah. important guy in the room when I was talking to him. <laughs> so it was kind of cool to meet him. Sure, sure. So what's your favorite uh, book book? You can give us a non-theological one and a theological one. Yeah, theological books. You know, one of the one of the first books that I that I really that really grabbed me was written by somebody who um, he's a reformed guy, uh, Michael Horton, uh, Christless Christianity. And then his follow up was Gospel Driven Life. And I, I really those just really grabbed me. Um, another book that I that I read, I think you might be familiar with it in the seminary. There is is a Christ Esteem by Don Matzat. I know um, Chuck Bilkus said that it was required reading when he went to seminary. It probably wasn't when you. Yeah, were. it wasn't when I did. Um, yeah, Life Together by Bonhoeffer, um, uh, so on and so. You know, th- those are the books, and whatever probably is on my desk. That's one of my favorites now too. You know, <laughs> I just I get a lot of books to read and and. Um, I try to plow through them. So are there any uh, starting points, a, a suggestion on a, maybe a first book that someone could read if they want to get into theology, but aren't, aren't really familiar with it and just need a starting point? Sure. I, um, you know, I, I'm unashamedly a Lutheran, and I would probably, I, I have a couple books on my shelf that are actually one of them was used is used by um, firm foundation Christian school now in their Bible um, curriculum for the high school. Um, they're, they're more uh, uh, what would you say? They're more textbooks in, in, um, in theology rather than a deep theological thing. Like, you know, the loci communes of Philip Melanchthon, which I have read just recently. And, you know, a young, a, a young person starting in on that, you know, they're just going to, 
I think they're just going to be lost. So it would have to be something very simple. There's a book I have from uh, Concordia. It sounds like I'm really plugging Concordia and Missouri Synod, but they, they have so much information. They, you know, they've got a vast catalog of, of books to, to purchase. Um, the Lutheran difference, you know, it compares the Lutheran a view of scripture, interpretation of scripture to interpretations by Baptists and Roman Catholics and um, so on and so forth. I think that's really good for somebody who likes to study. Um, you know, there's, there are, there are novels that you, uh, you know, the hammer of God, something like that. You know, it's, it's a, it's a good thing that I think will pique your interest in theology, although it probably wasn't written as a rich theological book, but yet it piques your interest. What, what's he talking about here? You know, and then you can delve into something a little bit more. Yeah. I'm not a C.S. Lewis fan. Sorry, guys. You know, just don't. I, I've read Mere Christianity, <laughs> Screw Tape Letters. I could have read Screw Tape Letters upside down and gotten just as much out of it. Um, you know, it, it, it depends on how our brains work and what type of people. I'm more of a studious type person. I would rather read a textbook than than something that is um, um, more less abstract. texty. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> less texty. That's a good way to put <laughs> <Yeah>. it. Um, <laughs> some books I'd recommend for someone just getting started is um, one book that I think is amazing um, is called The Spirituality of the Cross, and it's by Gene Edward Veith. And he's a man that... Um, kind of went religion hopping for a while trying to uh, find truth so he has he has a lot of experience in different religions and he found finally found peace in christianity and uh, in the broad sense and lutheranism in a more narrow sense and so he um so that's called the spirituality of the cross another one that you'd be familiar with denton is um, written by jonathan fisk and it's called broken seven christian rules that every christian should break as often as possible or something. And that's kind of a prov provocative title, but he basically just goes into things that we, um, that, that in Christianity that we just accept as good and right. And he says, okay, so some of these things are actually bad for you. Mm -hmm. And um, that that's written broken is a very, um, I really appreciate it because it's written in a way that is very easy for the layman to understand. There's not a lot of rich, um, there is rich theology, but it's not written like, um, like the evangelical faith by Helmut Tielecki, where you feel like you have to reread each page 10 times to uh, understand what he's talking about. But those or, are two books I'd recommend. For, um, you, now we could go on and on on books here, but, but um, you, you, you reminded me of Veith writes on, on vocation a lot too. Yes. Um, and I think that would be a good one for young people. What, you know, what, what should I do? What is the will of God in my life? And he delves into Luther's doctrine of vocation, which is a real calming doctrine um, that what you are doing Denton right now, you are doing God's work as mm -hmm. you go yeah. about your everyday, you know, and you're thinking, Oh, what should I do? What should my ministry be? You know, well, yeah. your vocation, what you have been called into is what you are doing right now in serving your brother. And, having the mask of God, you are actually serving God. So uh, Veith is, is well, um, well known in those circles. Yeah, we actually, um, I actually use Veith for my pre-marriage counseling. Um, I've done it a couple of times now. He's got a book called Family Vocation that I, yeah. I was yeah. mm -hmm. just trying to figure out what to do. I tried preparing and enrich, um, but uh, actually um, that didn't, um, Pastor Rod was helping me with that. And so Pastor Rod used to help me with my marriage, premarital counseling, but now he's gone on to glory. 
Um, so I kind of had to take a look at it and figure out what else to do. And I decided to go with that. And that was, that is just wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, but another thing which um, uh, helps us actually transition to our topic here is Luther's small catechism. Um, this is a fantastic starting off point if you want just bare bones theology. Uh, Luther, um, as we talked about with Pastor Jason last week, he he basically just lays out for you the, the chief articles of the faith. And even the questions and answers in there are just very helpful. Um, it, uh, I, I would challenge you, listener, if um, if you are uh, got some questions, see if you can find them in there. Um, he, he does a good job. Uh, so, Phil, we're talking about the Apostles' Creed now. So let's start with the basics. What is a creed and what is its purpose? Well, creed is a very simple word comes from the latin word credo and it literally just means i believe so a creed is a is a statement of what you believe it's it's really nothing more than that we can we can um use the word creed for a lot more than just the apostles or the athanasian or the nicene creed it's just what you believe in it you go into a into a um, building you know a restaurant or something they might have their statement of not a statement of faith, but you know, their purpose or something, you know, what, what is, what are those things that the mission statement, mission, mission statement. statement. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, that, that can really be, could be considered a creed as this is what they stand for, you know? So it's a concise statement of, of what we believe. Um, you know, you're all familiar with either baptizing um, or being at a baptism. And you read from the altar book, you know, let us hear the Christian faith at our church and church confesses and into which this child is to be baptized and then the apostles creed is read so it's a confession of faith saying back what the bible says to us which is the word confession and i think in the in the confession it then when we confess our faith in the creed it then can sort of morph for lack of a better ter term into a proclamation you know, it is, it can be then yeah. not only what we confess, but we can proclaim to somebody else what we believe. And really in that, then you, they're, they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to hear the need for their sins forgiven and um, where they find that and how they are strengthened in, in um, their walk. I'm speaking, of course, of the Apostles' Creed here. Yeah, um, that's... Um, sure. I, I like how you talk about the proclamation because um, we tend to, when we grow up with things, we don't tend to view them in that way. So like, um, you know, I've known the creed since, I mean, I don't remember when I memorized the creed. Um, it was something that happened at an early age for me. Um, and so you don't really necessarily have that in the part of the, your brain as proclamation, but it definitely is that. And not only is it, is it proclamation, but it's proclaiming like everything you know christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of our sins and it's it's really precious to know and to be able to teach that to your children mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so phil what are the earliest instances of creeds that we find in the scriptures um one is jesus himself as he's speaking to um this would be martha in the 11th chapter of john and Jesus said unto, unto her and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. So that really is a, Jesus is laying out a creedal statement there, and she's assenting to it. Yes, I believe oh, yeah. that. 
you know, um, uh, Timothy, first uh, Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And this is without with with common confession, you might say without controversy, it's a common confession among you. This is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. So we have some examples here of of statements of faith that a believer would either agree to or an unbeliever would say, no, I don't believe, don't believe that, you know? In your experience then, um, how do, how do lay people tend to, or I shouldn't even say lay people, how do people tend to view the creeds? Um, how do Christians tend to view them? Like, um, is it generally positive or negative or? Sure, sure. I, I think you know, we, we, you, somebody, one of you talked about your youth, you know, that, that you always, you know, you just sort of learn these things and, and whatever, you don't maybe even um, recognize the importance of them or whatever. But I think maybe for many of us, the creed is just something that we had to learn beginning in third or fourth grade, you know, in, in um, Sunday school and recite at confirmation. But it, it, it's something that we've really tried to, uh, put to the forefront here in in our church, um, you know, on Trinity Sunday we read the Athanasian Creed and and so on that that type of thing and and we say the creed we recite the creed at every communion service, and and I think it's it's um, being much more widely accepted as a proper uh, interpretation or whatever of, of Scripture. Um, negative in some sense, maybe even some among us, you know, that, oh, we, we don't need a creed. Well, it's, or it's too Catholic, you know, because it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic church, you know, when you are, our catechism says the Holy Christian church, but the original wording in the Greek, Nick, you're more up on this than I am, but Catholic, um, you know, universal church so that they've heard that word Catholic church. And they think, oh, the creed is too Catholic, or we don't need creeds. You know, my faith has found a resting place, not in a man-made creed, you know, which we sing in our, yeah. One I, of the songs I, I kind of always don't... have a hard time singing that yeah, song yeah. a little bit. Sure. Um, and, you know, without any kind of a creed, without any type of interpretation of the scripture, then your interpretation can be your own and it can lead to some type of mysticism. You know, well, this is what right. I believe the scripture says. Well, the creeds that we have that have been that have been sent down from the beginning of the uh, the very early church are something that we can say that they are solid interpretations of the scripture. It's not based on what I think the scripture says. Right. And I think there's something very important to um, understanding that um, the faith that we have now, it didn't come to us in a vacuum. God didn't just electrocute us with this faith. Um, it sure. was handed down from generation to generation to generation. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um, the creeds are a big part of that. And, um, you know, that, that song you reference, uh, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place, um, it's, it's really interesting because I hate the opening of it, but I love the chorus. I need no other evidence. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and rose again for me. Yeah, that's um, a creed. Yeah, but that's a creed. Exactly. <laughs> that's a statement of faith. And um, and it almost seems like it's some kind of um, straw man against the nature of um, having a confession of faith. I kind of look at the creeds like a um, safety manual at work. You know, um, you start a business, um, you don't really have a whole lot of rules, but then someone falls off a ladder. And so you're like, OK, we're going to put something in place so that this doesn't happen again. 
And that's kind of where a lot of these creedal statements came from. Like the Athanasian Creed arose out of controversies within the church about the nature of the Trinity. Um, even the Apostles' Creed in some of those articles, they refute direct heresy. And it's kind of like the church came together and put these statements out to guide the ship, as you would, um, through through the course of life. And, um, you know, where the, where the creeds aren't scriptural, they're not, we, we don't need them. And so um, we confess them to be true and in harmony with the scriptures. And, um, and, and they're, they're certainly valuable then in guiding us and protecting us from ourselves. Um, you know, I think one of the most dangerous questions in tr- Christianity today is what does this mean to you? Sure. Um, that, that somehow right. one verse mm-hmm. can mean something different to each people. Now, certainly the Holy Spirit can use things in a different way, but the truth of God's word is constant and it doesn't change. So let's, um, and talking specifically about the Apostles' Creed, now that's, um, how, how does Luther, when he writes his catechism, decide to divide that? Sure. Um, yeah, you know, there's, uh, um, he, he divided, I'm, I'm going to read, I'm going to stutter here for a while. <laughs> I'm going to read from the large catechism, okay? Um, Go ahead. Obviously, the Apostles' Creed. In the first place, the creed has until now been divided into 12 articles. You, you talked about that in your introduction there, Nicholas. Yet, if all the doctrinal points that are written in the scriptures and that belong to the creed were to be distinctly set forth, there would be far more articles. They could not all be clearly expressed in so few words. But to make the creed most easily and clearly understood as it is to be taught to children, we shall briefly sum up the entire creed in three chief articles according to the three persons in the Godhead. Everything that we believe is related to these three persons. So the first article about God the Father explains creation. The second article about the Son explains redemption. And the third about the Holy Spirit explains sanctification. We present them as though the creed were briefly summarized in so many words. I believe in God the Father, who has created me. I believe in God the Son, who has redeemed me. I believe in the Holy Spirit who sanctified me. One God and one faith, but three persons. So that's his introduction there to the creed and how Luther divided it up. So therefore it's, it's Trinitarian in nature. Right. And I I do, I think it's worth pointing out some more astute people. Um, I've had the question too. um, And um, forgive me, Phil, I don't think I warned you about this question. It just popped into my head. Okay. we will certainly want to guard against the error of modalism and looking at it like, um, you know, and, and that can right. be um, mm-hmm. kind of sketchy when you start talking about God, the father, the creator, God, the son, the redeemer. Sure. Um, and, and Luther's not going there. Luther's Luther's not saying that um, these roles are really the part point, but he's saying um, he's saying uh, he's speaking of um, what God does and um as you can, as you said, it's it's trinitarian in nature. In talking about that, um, you, we don't just believe in God, but we believe in the trinitarian God, and so it narrows it down. And that's ten. That's what ten creeds tend to do. They tend the the Christian creeds anyway. They tend to narrow it down so that there's no other room for anything else. Was that in kind of a direct refutation of people? not accepting the trinity was that the purpose of that um or were they putting that in there just as a statement of faith and there wasn't any 
outside reason as to why they put that as the beginning. Kind of that very laid out Trinitarian wording. I think that's in Luther's words there, it seems like it, it's just the way he wanted to lay it out rather than to go with the, which I believe he even called folklore of, of it being in 12 individual pieces or written by 12, the 12 apostles. Uh, so I don't know if it was really his intent to divide it there into the three parts. You know, I think if you read the, and it goes back to the old Roman creed, right? Right. Which is a little bit shorter in nature. I believe in God, the father almighty and in Jesus Christ. It's back to like 80 AD or something. Yeah. Yeah. It was way back, you know? And so I don't know if it was really, you know, and, and I'm not a, I'm not a student on the history of that there, but I, I believe Luther divided it up just for the plain and simple and clear teaching for the young people, as he mentioned right. there in the introduction to the creed. Now the Athanasian that obviously addresses the, the nature of the Trinity, okay. you know, but I think your question is a good one because it is fascinating that um, even today, um, if a Jehovah's witness comes to your door, you can ask them if they confess the Apostles' Creed. And they might say that they do, but the very fact that they deny the Trinity excludes them from confessing that with us. And, and so it may not have been the intent, but it certainly does narrow it down so there's, that there's not room for other um, people to come in and claim anything else. So if you, if you confess the Apostles' Creed with us, you're saying that you believe in the Trinitarian God, in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So then I might just assume, and this is just an assumption, that the writers or the ones who compiled or whatever, the Apostles' Creed, maybe didn't have the Trinity uh, ref refuting the non-Trinitarians, but they wrote it in a Trinitarian fashion because that's what they believed in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't like they're trying to refute anything. This is just what it is. And we're going to lay it out here, Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but there is, um, you know, I do think there was probably some reaction against Gnosticism. Like, um, you know, the Gnostics had some real funky beliefs about creation um, that almost sound like Greek mythology. And they were trying to say that it was Christian. And so in, in formulating the creed, you're basically saying, well, those Gnostics are wrong. Like, they don't confess this with sure. us. And, and Gnosticism, of course, was addressed even in the end of the first century. You know, John's right. epistles address Gnosticism. So uh, those those heresies that had already risen, their ugly, ugly head, you know. Yeah, it among, didn't take long church. for no. um, people to start going their own way. Right. And so right. that's that's kind of what you see the purpose. of. It, it's almost like there's a two-fold purpose of a creed then, at least in Christianity. That mm -hmm. one is to... Um, unite, unite the church in confession and proclamation, as you said, Phil. Um, but then there's also, a, um, uh, and maybe this is just a secondary effect, but they also um, divide, they also narrow down, they also, and, and that's why I think they unify, because they exclude anything that would come up that is not um, uh, contained in the creed, but also by extension, the scriptures themselves. Um, and, and the creed is a very good um, litmus test for um, uh, if you want to like evaluate doctrine or if you hear something that somebody says, you know, um, we all know the creed. So if someone comes to you and says, you know, I had this experience with um, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, they came to my door and talked to me and I talked to them. And uh, eventually they showed me a video where it said Jesus was a God. 
And I said, I don't know about that. I said, don't we believe um, that, uh, that God, that there's only one true God? And they said, I don't know. I got to uh, think about that. Mm-hmm. And then they, this other guy came over and said, I heard you had some questions. And so I repeated the question to him and he says, you, uh, he goes, what do you do for work? You're, you're asking some pretty good questions there. And I yeah. said, oh, I'm the pastor of that church over there. Yeah. And he, he never came back to my house. He got out of there as quick as he could. And it was, um, but, but right away you hear something like a God and you're like, wait yeah. a second. That's, that's John chapter one, verse one in their Bible. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. Yep. One little letter, one little letter, one little word. And it throws the whole matter of the deity of Christ and the Trini- Trinity um, right out the window. Yeah, it was it was funny how the guy just never came back, never wanted to have anything to do with me after that. Um, I tried to give him a catechism, but he said if I wanted to give him a book, I had to find him at his house. And uh, that I, I didn't know how to do that, so right. I left it there. So then what is the first article of the creed? What is the first article? Is yeah. this like you're you're asking me now? Yeah, this like is, a this confirmation, is confirmation. Huh? Yeah. I believe right. in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Um, it's creation. That's what it talks about. Creation. Um, the act of creating um, something, causing something to exist, bringing the world into existence. Um, Paul writes to the Romans, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's really good. So Mm -hmm. Denton, what is meant by this? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's only I believe that God has made me. (laughs) I believe that God has made me and all my members, my all creatures first, isn't it? Oh yeah, me and all creatures. Yeah, yeah. My body I had to pull out my catechism here because my body, oh, man, soul, I got eyes, nervous. ears, and all my senses, and still preserves uh, them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just kidding, Denton. Um, so what? So we've we've ta- been talking about this a little bit already, but um, what does it when when we talk about creation? Um, let's let's boil it down to brass tacks. What are we really talking about? Um, what what is what is this? proclaiming what is this in in well i believe you know just what he says i believe that god has made me and all creatures that he has created us um and of course you know we, we talk about you talk about modalism before you know modalism is that in the old testament time god existed as god in the in the early in the time of Christ, he existed as Christ, and now he exists as the Holy Spirit. But we know that in the book of Colossians, it tells us that through him, that is through Jesus Christ, the worlds were framed. And we know in the beginning, first chapter of Genesis, that the Spirit of God um, hovered or brooded upon the face of the water. So they were all present there at the time of creation. So um, is that what you're getting at, Nick? What is creation, Um, that he has created us? Yeah. So what what are we, what are we, um, when we confess that God is the creator, what are we confessing? That he is the origin of all things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, um, nowadays originator origin. Yeah. That that (laughs) he is the one who made us. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that seems like a simple thing, but nowadays, um, I mean, uh, when I was in high school, uh, my textbook, and I remember this, I don't know why, 
um, said that there are two main theories about the creation of the world. The first is creationism, and the second is evolution. For the purposes of this textbook, we're going to talk about evolution. And um, I don't even know if they probably even give a hat tip to the theory of creationism anymore they in scientific text, textbooks. Yeah. Even from when I was in high school, I remember, I don't remember anything about creationism. And so it's, it's not like we spent any time on it, but at least they gave a little nod to it. But our, our kids today are being inundated with this idea that if you don't believe um, that we originated from, you know, one single celled organism, then you're, you know, out to lunch or you're believing in fairy tales. And I think it's really, um, I think it's really important that we understand that when we say we believe that God is the creator, we're saying that we believe the Genesis account of God creating the heavens and the earth. We're saying that to be true. Now, there's different arguments and disagreements about different um, details of that. And there's, you know, we don't need to get into that completely and especially. Um, but when we confess that God is the creator, we're saying that he's the source of our life. And... Um, and that's a that's kind of a big deal in today's age. It 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 makes it makes some conversations awkward with with people. And um, but that's what it is to confess the truth of the scriptures. And and, and it's fascinating. The first article of the creed is: "I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth." And that's not a very long statement. It's not very exhaustive, but um, like I said, as far as creeds go, it really narrows it down as to who can confess this with us. And and you know, creed, what we believe, believe and faith are very you know they're real, really the same word. Um, we go to the faith chapter in Hebrews, the chapter eleven of Hebrews, in verse three, we read through faith. We understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So it seems as a faith itself is foundational, the foundations of faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews anyway, the way the Hebrew writer lays it out, begins with this belief that God created all things. You know, you skip that verse and then how can you say that, that you have faith in his the redemptive work of christ you know if you skip over the the very foundational thing which which the hebrew writer begins with i think it's of utmost importance we go on with that too then and that same thing that that god is the origin of all uh, the originator of all things the source of all things there, there's more to God than just creation. Obviously, we know that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved us to the extent that he gave his son to us. So not only did he create us, but in a sense, we're sneaking into the second article here now. He has redeemed us, but through his son, right? Mm -hmm. And we, we're talking about the love of God. Hereby, we perceive the love of God that he laid down his life for us. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. So the love of God is, is something that originates, obviously, with God, the love of God. Love originates with him, too. Right. We, we sing a song now in the Lent season, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. 
Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span on Calvary. So when we speak of God as being the creator, we also have to speak of his other attributes. He's not, it's not, he's a one-time thing and that's all he's ever done. He's created the world and everything. And now he's just resting, doing nothing. Right. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. Um, And I I do want to say that, um, you know, too often in, in the church, I think we're hard on doubt. You know, I understand that there are real questions that people have about creation and about evolution and doubt that creeps in. And I don't want anyone listening to this to that. If you're struggling with the Genesis narrative um, and you're, you're having a hard time with it, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that's not like a, a salvation thing. That's a very normal thing. I've struggled with it myself. I'll struggle with it some more, I'm sure. Um, but um, there's, um, there are truths in the scripture that are sometimes hard for us to believe, but they're a lot easier for us to confess. And um, what I mean by that, um, this might be a little personal, but um, my wife and I had a miscarriage um, about a month and a half ago, and it, it was pretty tragic. We were about eight weeks along. And um, as I'm sitting there um, waiting for her to, um, she had to have surgery, um, waiting for that to be done, I'm, I'm just thinking, and uh, I couldn't help but think of a song that I've sang since I was a child, Children of the Heavenly Father. Though he giveth or he taketh, God his children ne'er forsaketh. His the loving purpose solely to preserve them pure and holy. And I was reminded there of the verse that I believe that song is bringing to mind. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what Job says after he goes through hardship. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm having a hard time believing this. You know, that um, the Lord would give and the Lord would take away. Um, but it's a lot easier for me to confess. And um, it's, it's fascinating that when we do confess these truths in the scripture, that it does help us with the believing part too. Um, but um, what I'm saying is doubt isn't bad. I think that doubt can actually be a good thing because first of all, in order to doubt, you have to have something to doubt to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it reminds me even of... of- the, your whole subject there of, of Jesus and his disciples, how Jesus would be giving them as well as the multitudes around a, a parable. And then they would retire for the evening and the disciples would say, could you explain that parable to us? You know, I think, I think that's the, that's the good side of, of doubt is that we would inquire further whether these things would be, we would have the, the spirit of the Bereans, right? would search right, the scriptures right. daily Diligently, to see yeah. if those things would, would be, would be according to the scripture. So, so um, no, it, it's not a bad thing. Questioning and doubts. I mean, wow. Uh, if, if we were to be judged by whether we have doubts or not, you know, where would we stand? Right. No, no, it's, it's, it's good. And, and, and maybe even by confessing these things in the form of a creed over and over again, as we say, confessing is really saying back what God already says in his word, that, that, is, is, having a, that is producing a good work in our hearts and our minds. Oh, yes. And, yeah. and that's kind of what I mean when I say it's easier to confess yes, exactly. than to believe. Because mm-hmm. what I'm getting at is um, when we submit ourselves to God's word, even if it goes against our reason or our our logic, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to say, 
I don't necessarily understand this. I struggle with it, but Lord, I confess it to be true. And, um, and, and I think that's a, a big part of, um, uh, of Christianity in general is that we put ourselves underneath God's word um, instead of trying to filter God's word through um, the litmus test of what makes sense to us. So we've already talked about it a little bit, but uh, what's the second article of the creed? Uh, do you want me to read the whole thing then? Or Yeah, that's great. Yes. I, I, could, I should recite the whole thing. Yes. Right, there we go. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Yeah. And Denton, what does this mean? What is meant by this? Oh, <laughs> that joke's never going to get old. <laughs> yep. I believe I should that have Jesus, it pulled up here. But... <laughs> I, right? You're going to get it for the next one. I believe that Jesus Christ is, is that how it goes? I believe that Jesus yeah, Christ I is believe true that starts... true God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's kind of where I was trailing off. So I got about five mm -hmm. words in. Um, sure. So um, now, with, what are we? What are we confessing when we when we confess this second article? Okay, going going back to Luther's large catechism as well as the small. This is redemption. Um, literally, what that is 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 to buy back. And in Christian theology, the the term it, it stands for uh, being reco recovered from sin. And by paying, by a, a ransom that has been paid, as Jesus, of course, gave his life for a ransom for many, that we have been purchased back. It's not just purchased, but purchased back. Isn't that interesting? Because of the fall, we were removed from Christ, from God, excuse me. And now Christ is buying us back into that right relationship, if I use that term, to God. So we have been redeemed. Not with silver nor with gold, but with his precious blood, as as Peter writes. Right, and and even confessing this would exclude the Mormons from confessing it with us. That's right, because this this article says that Jesus is the only Son of God, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, the Mormons don't teach right. that. Right, um, and it also excludes um, you. You, in order to be redeemed, um, as you mentioned, you have to have a. Um, something to be redeemed from. And so sure. anybody who would die or sure. deny original sin cannot confess this creed faithfully. Right, right. Paul writes to Ephesians, um, in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Yes. Yeah. I, you, you gave the story of Jehovah's Witness, I believe, was your, yep. was your start, Nicholas. Yep. I, I remember a few years back, we were getting ready for the Memorial Day camp out. We were la had laid our tent out on the garage um, apron there, the concrete, and we're counting the stakes that were broken and I should have replaced from last year and so on and so forth. And <laughs> these two young men walk up the driveway. And you guys have both been to our place. I wrote our house is not really visible from the street. So it surprised me a little bit when two people come walking and I noticed their names, you know, Elder Nicholas and Elder Denton, you know, on there. Oh, wow. Good names. Their, mm -hmm. Good, good names. Oh, right. Yeah. They weren't you two, by the way. And we obviously Mormons and we, we had some small talk for a while. And then we, they began to uh, present their spiel to us. And I just stopped them in mid sentence. And I said, who is Jesus? 
And they said, well, he's, he's our savior and a redeemer and all those things which are true. And I said, no, but who is he? Not what is he? Not what his attributes, but who is he? And they would not or could not say that he is, as Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. They could not say that Jesus is the son of God. Mm -hmm. So it excludes them, like you said, Nicholas. It excludes them from being able to recite this creed. This is kind of why you need creeds like we were talking about earlier. Um, Because you need something to set you apart. If you don't have something that you're standing for or following, then it becomes just this wishy-washy mess and, you know, it, it becomes more subjective, which of course never ends well. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we all can say that we stand on the Bible. I mean, how many people go to a, that, you know, go to a Bible believing church, sure. but it's another sure. thing to actually say what that means. Okay. So I believe in the Bible. I'm not really saying much um, because there's many people that say they believe in the Bible, but then um, deny things like, infant baptism uh and if just different things like that or you know the mormons say they're a bible believing church the jehovah's witnesses say they're a bible believing church so it's it's not enough anymore to just say you confess the scriptures because so many people say they do that so sure. when we narrow things down we um we really make it more um helpful mm-hmm. um there was a man in the first century named serinthus who was uh, a popular teacher in ephesus and he taught that um uh, Jesus was the son of um, Joseph and Mary, and at his baptism, the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. came upon him, and then he became the Son of God. And then he also taught that Jesus on the cross, that then that Spirit left him, and then he was a man. And so um, this creed is helpful in refuting that kind of idea, too, because when it says um, he was crucified dead and buried, you know, first of all, it says he's God's son and doesn't just say that he became God's son at some point and then wasn't. Um, but um, it's very, um, it's very helpful that the creed says that he, that we confess that Jesus died um, and that he descended into hell and that he rose again because the Gnostics not only followed after Serenthus and what he taught, but there was also, um, you know, if you've ever I believe it's C. It's C.S. Lewis who makes this argument that because um, uh, basically concerning the death and resurrection of Christ, um, I mean I don't think it is C.S. Lewis. I'm kind of going off base here, but um, we'll we'll bring it back around. But basically, there's um, you know when you when you look at like um, the historicity of the resurrection, um, there's no denying that the tomb was empty, and so there's you know the explanation is well either Jesus rose again as he said he did or the disciples stole his body, or another theory was that he was just in a swoon, that he didn't actually die, that he suffered severe wounds, that he wasn't dead, and then he woke up and and got away. And so the creed really just narrows it down and makes it so that we have to confess that Jesus died, and that he entered into death, he descended into hell, and then he rose again from the dead. Um, And because that's really the central part of our faith. And honestly, one of the coolest things that I like to teach my students um, in confirmation, um, especially if you're talking about Galatians, where Paul says, if any man comes to you and preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. Um, Because uh, the scriptures tell us, Paul tells us the gospel that he preached. In Corinthians, the 15th chapter, Paul says, 
um, I would like to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached unto you. And do you know what he says the gospel mm -hmm. is, the gospel mm -hmm. that Paul preached? Well, it's basically this article of the creed it is. that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures and that he rose again or that he died for our sins and that he rose again on the third day and appeared to us. This is the gospel that Paul preached, that Jesus died for our sins. And that's what we confess in this creed. It's interesting, just looking at the creed as you would lay it out, maybe just the bold parts in the in the catechism, you'll see that that this second article is is the largest, and it's also in the middle. Of of course, you know, if you talk about the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it would be in the middle. But but uh, it, it is interesting too that in 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 Christianity, maybe especially in Lutheran Christianity. We, uh, we claim to be, and I believe are, Christocentric. You know, we, we, we stress the importance. Of, how do I say one part is more important than the other? Maybe I'll, 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 I'll talk about with, with scripture here. But it seems around us even now, the modern church, may, and I, I'm going to generalize here in some of my statements when I speak about other churches. You know, I, I don't mean to disparage all of their teaching, but it seems that a lot of the teaching, the, the modern church, the evangelical church, is that God will empower us. You know, empower us to be more like Christ, because really he's our example for good, righteous living. And, you know, the, the extreme of that would maybe be the charismatics. You know, they would take the Holy Spirit saying, well, that's the most important, because um, now they will allow us to do the miracles that Christ performed when he was on the earth. But, but scripture, I believe, points to the centrality of, of Christ. Um, God spoke from heaven when Jesus began his, what we call his earthly ministry. And that was at the baptism of John in the, in the wilderness in the river Jordan. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And towards the end of his ministry at the Mount of Transfiguration, God repeated that. And he added, hear ye him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Now, concerning the Holy Spirit, Jesus teaching as far as the Spirit, howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. So God speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus speaks of the spirit that he will take the things of mine and show them unto you. He will testify of me. So we see in scripture, even the, the Christocentricity. I just made a, that's a 50 cent word, isn't it? Right. Um, that is, that is very evident here, even in the creed in that it very clearly spills, spells out the entire life and the passion of Christ in the second article, all things point to him as God, the father did and God, the Holy spirit continues to point to Christ. Yeah, Phil, um, I think this might be a good time to plug um, the book that you mentioned Christless Christianity. What is the quote that he um, quotes at the beginning of that book? It starts with a God without wrath entered into a world um, do you know what I'm talking about? Where he says, "A God without wrath entered into a world without sin." I I don't remember the quote. I'd have gonna, to get the book off up. my shelf, and I yeah. I... Okay, yeah, that's Niebuhr. Um, Michael right. Horton begins that book 
um, by quoting me. Oh, no. Christless Christian. Yeah. 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 So he says, um, a God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And that's a critique that um, he was bringing against the Christless Christianity, that that's kind of what, um, and I think that's kind of what you described there a little bit is that that's kind of um, what the church, um, that's, that's something that is an undercurrent in Christianity today that we kind of try to avoid the, um, the judgment. Um, but uh, we don't realize that when we do that, we're actually um, avoiding the redemption and we're avoiding all the other good stuff too. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to have a poem on our bathroom wall, and it was um, that Footprints poem, um, <laughs> Footprints in the Sand. Um, I might, I'm every, everybody's probably familiar with it, but I'll, I'll read it for you. Um, and I want, maybe the listeners can listen to, for what we've been talking about. Um, because um, this, this poem, as, as nice and feel good as it is, it doesn't quite, um, it misses a pretty clear mark. Um, So it goes like this. One night I had a dream. I dreamed I was walking along the beach. Oh no, this is, this is just a, um, okay. Maybe, maybe this isn't the way I remember it, but that's fine. One night I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes of my flash life flashed across the sky. And each scene, I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times there were one set of footprints. This bothered me because I noticed the low periods of my life when I was suffering anguish, sorrow, or defeat, I could only see one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, you promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I've noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there have only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why, when I needed you most... Um, were you not there for me? The Lord replied, the times when you saw only one set of footprints is when I carried you. And that's by Mary Stevenson. I, um, I had trouble finding the right version that I was remembering. That seems a little different than the one that I remember. Um, but, um, and maybe I can just uh, spring this on you, Phil, but um, do, you, do you have the same problem that I do with this poem? Oh, oh, sure. You know, that, that really there would only for a christian there's really should only be one set of footprints ever yeah because (laughs) when do we walk on our own you know yeah when are we ever not carried by christ sure sure Mm -hmm. um and um i i've had people i've had that poem um people wanting to read that poem at um funerals and things like that and it's a really sticky situation to try and you know, I, I think I, I, I let I, I didn't stop them from reading it, but I just made sure I addressed the fact that Christ is always carrying us. Um, so um, I'm going to um, I got a different poem uh, that I want to put in my bathroom on the wall. Um, I meant to do this a long time ago, so uh, this is a reminder to do it. But I think this is a better version of the poem. Um, this is by a man named Stephen Hine, and it goes like this. One night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen. Saw footprints of my Lord galore, but mine were not along the shore. But then did stranger prints appear. I asked the Lord, what have we here? Those prints are large and round and neat, but Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, said he in somber tone, my footprints do you see alone. 
where you my promise did believe and victories you did receive. But when you struggled in my arm to live out your own righteous charm, in your own power you sought to strut. Well, there I dropped you on your butt. As Christian daughter, Christian son, tis true you have a race to run. That race is only truly won when in my arms the work is done. When times do come to rise and fight, to risk the loss, to do the right, on Christ's strong arms you take your stand, or leave your butt prints in the sand. And that's kind of humorous, um, but uh, I feel like that's the better version. Yeah, that, that might be well, well reserved uh, for the bathroom then, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I actually no, but it, read it from the pulpit once. <laughs> it's... it's it is theologically correct, though. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think you know? obviously there's it's, some humor in there. Sure. Um, sure. Um, but how often when we, um, you know, try to stand on our own, um, do we end up just leaving those prints in the sand? Yeah. So, Phil, why is it important that we confess faith in Jesus Christ as the only son of God? I think, um, again, Scripture gives us the answer. Who is that guy on, on issues, etc.? cetera? He used to do a lot of Sunday school. Um, uh, Tom lessons. Baker. Yeah. Don Baker. And he says, as always scripture interprets scripture and he would start reading scripture. So I think it's maybe okay that we would go okay. to scripture for some answers. Why is it important to confess in Jesus as, as the only son of God? And I emphasize that only son of God. And I, I think, you know, we go to scripture before Jesus was even born. The angel came to Joseph and said this, she, that is Mary, obviously, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The angel doesn't say that he is going to be one of many who will save the people from their sins, but he, singular. Of course, that's a singular seed, even as Paul writes uh, you know, to the Galatians, the promise that was given to, to Abraham, it says to seed, not as many, but one, a singular seed. Um, later on, in the early church, there was a man that was healed, and Peter, Peter and Paul were there in the portico of the, of the temple, and, and um, the confession of Peter was that neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The only name. So there is no other name whereby we must be or can be or should be saved. So I think scripture itself gives us the answer for that. Why is there salvation in only one person? No man comes to the father, but by me, the words of Jesus, you have seen me, you have seen the father. We could go on and on as far as the, um, the necessity of us entering into the kingdom through the, the right uh, gate, the only gate which has been given. And that gate, of course, is, is Jesus, as he explains of himself. So, Phil, what's the third article of the creed? I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Um, Dan, what's meant by this? I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in one true faith. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. On the last day, he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life 
to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. And indeed it is. And I'm glad that you, um, you clearly read that, by the way. Nobody is fooled. So the first article of the creed dealt with creation, the second with redemption, and the third one was sanctification. So, Phil, what is sanctification? You know, there's a T-shirt that you can buy on the Internet, you know, Lutherans, weak on sanctification. And <laughs> I, I, I think that because the emphasis on some has been sanctif- the sanctified walk the saint the or or entire sanctification that somewhat time in the life of a christian they would become perfect but sanctification in in a wide sense it it includes um all the effects of god's word in in a in a man in a narrow sense it's the spiritual growth as we uh ephesians chapter 2 created unto good works which god hath ordained that we would walk in them and then by by god's grace you know we we, um, through the Holy Spirit's work, we increase in, in um, love for one another. We are strengthened in our walk. And even as Denton recited there in the meaning. So sanctification has different levels, you might say. And I think that's maybe why there, there's been a, a little bit of a, a push against sanctification. If there is, the push against it is because there has been a teaching that there comes a point in time where we are holy, we are perfect, we have no more sin. And, right. you know, what came out of the, uh, the Reformation, you know, and I can't quote it in Latin, but simultaneously sinner and saint. We are both. Through Christ Same Jesus, time. we are perfect, but we are still sinners. And there are many in the modern church, no, we don't sin anymore because we're sanctified. We're holy. We're set apart. We, we're God's people. We don't sin anymore. And we flatly deny that because scripture denies that. You know, we, we, we hear people say uh, that the seventh chapter of Romans was written by the unregenerate Paul. And we don't believe that, you know, Paul so, doesn't say that. <laughs> it doesn't say that. No, we yeah, say, well, he's... He did had a long pause there between the seventh and the eighth chapter, because then yeah. the eighth chapter, you know, that we, we, we don't sin anymore. You know, that's what Paul right. says basically there. Yeah. Well, so. it's fascinating because even just when you read it, he uses present active verbs, right? So he mm-hmm. says mm-hmm. the good I um, would do, or the good I want to do that. I do not do. He doesn't say that I didn't do, and right. he knows how right. to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Um, so, so yeah, that, that is a, um, a, a, a big deal um, when we understand that, um, yes, there is a tension between the old Adam in us and the new man in Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what this um, article pertains to. So, Phil, why is it important that we confess faith in the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit? There was a... Um... Uh, you know, we, we all, we all have stories, don't we? It reminds me sort of of pastor Rod. He, he had a story for every single question that was ever asked of him. I'll give you an illustration. I'll give you an illustration. That's what it was. Yes. Um, but, but I was had a, when it was in a discussion with a man years ago who no longer attends our church, but there was a, he was making a comment about us, but I think it was probably a little bit of an accusation against us. And he said that we are, we are binarians instead of Trinitarians in that we don't speak a whole lot about the Holy Spirit. And I think what, what he was saying was that we don't speak about the, 
the outward manifestations of the spirit. You know, we don't, we don't, we're not talking, speaking in tongues and, you know, slaying in the spirit and all that type of things, although he's not a charismatic, but yet he's, we, we don't really talk about that stuff. But I said, no, we do talk about the Holy Spirit because we talk about Christ. And that's what we just read there from the 16th or the 14th, 15th, 16th chapter of John, as Jesus explains the purpose of the Holy Spirit. So the third person of the Godhead is of utmost importance for us now in, in, um, in the Christian church. Um, first of all, we talked about confession, what we might believe. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, that no man can see that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Now, that's pretty important there, the work of the Holy Spirit revealing to us that Jesus is the Lord. Remember what that question that Jesus asked of his disciples, who do, who do men say that I am? And then after G Peter's confession, Jesus said, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And that Father which is in heaven now, through the Holy Spirit, reveals to us the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. So there's the importance of, the, of um, confessing our faith, belief in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and that does kind of, when, when we talk about um, uh, believing in the Holy Spirit, I think it is worth talking a little bit about um, how the Spirit works in our life. Um, so yeah, as Apostolic Lutherans, we don't put a whole lot of emphasis on spiritual gifts. And that's not necessarily because we don't believe um, that the spirit works in that way. Um, you know, I, I tend to, um, I don't know if this is a codified doctrine of the Apostolic Lutheran Church, but I find myself um, more and more um, uh, agreeing with the cessationist position, which um, basically, for those of you who are listening, um, believes that the, the gifts of the spirit that are outlined in um, Corinthians and um, that we see on display in Acts were um, given to the apostles and um, not necessarily um, passed down to us. Um, if they do appear in our age, it's a special thing and not a normal thing. Oh, and and, and I, I agree with you. I don't think it's codified uh, either, but I, I would I would think that that is what we would believe in, that the, the, gift, the outward gifts of the Holy Spirit um, ceased, there's where that word cessationism comes from, with the apostles, with the exception of those peculiar cases. Luther even maybe um, quantified that a little bit, or qualified it, I should say, qualified it, with saying that those gifts of the Spirit were probably evident in the, in the mission field, now in the church age, when there are those who do not believe, and then there would be some accompanying gifts, similar to what would be done in that we read about in the book of Acts, these accompanying gifts, right? For the purpose right. that they would hear and believe the gospel. Yeah, and that's the thing. Um, I think that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of speaking in tongues today. Um, you know, um, that word tongues in Greek is glossa or glossolalia. And what it literally means uh, is languages. And so it's almost redundant to um, when we say speaking in tongues, um, because um, people think what that means is um, they don't realize that that simply just means speaking in languages. 
And so the gift of tongues you see on full display on the day of Pentecost, where there's all these different people groups, um, Jews, Parthians, Medes, um, all these different people groups in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles and they preach God's word in their own language. And all the people present hear it Mm -hmm. in their native tongue, in their own language, in their native language. Mm -hmm. And um, so you don't really see a direct example of, you know, somebody saying or praying um, gibberish. It's languages. And nowadays in a lot of Pentecostal churches, what you see is what one of my bosses was telling me, well, you just start speaking and it'll come out or, or having a certain prayer language and that kind of thing. Um, uh, that, that just seems to be uh, to not, not pass the, the smell test to me, but there are a couple stories that I've heard of in the mission field in our group. Um, one of, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying they're not true. I, I think they, they are, but uh, my grandpa had an experience where my, my grandpa wasn't raised in the Apostolic Lutheran Church. He's not Finnish. But in California, he got invited to services by some of his friends. And he goes to the service, and um, I believe it's John Rekinen was preaching. And he said it was just a sermon, that there wasn't anything special about it. But while he was in the food line, his buddies were apologizing to him because they didn't realize it was a Finnish service, um, going to be a Finnish service that day. And my grandpa said that he was not aware that it was a Finnish service. He was like, what? I didn't know that was in Finnish. And so that's something that my grandpa has said. Um, and I, I believe him. You know, I know Dennis Hillman also had a story where he said he was in German, where he needed to be able to preach, speak German or something, and that he was able to for a day. Now, I don't know. We don't base our faith on those stories or those experiences, but we do understand that those are special circumstances. You know, I've been in Southern California and heard, heard people speaking Spanish and would have been very helped to learn Spanish. And the spirit did not give me that gift. Sure, sure. Um, and also, I think that there's a problem in the church with, you know, talking about like the gift of healing um, and things yeah. like that. You know, you see those videos on YouTube of people being able to regrow people's legs, but they're not in the cancer ward at the hospital. You know, right. it's just uh, and I hate to be skeptical. I hate to. I hate to do that, but um, I think there are miraculous cases where God does gift people with healing. And, um, uh, but I don't, anytime somebody is um, benefiting monetarily or with respect to power or influence, um, I, 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 we just, we can't follow after people who manifest those types of gifts. Mm-hmm. And, um, the reason why I think goes back to Exodus. Um, the sorcerers of Pharaoh were able to do some of the same things that Moses did by the Spirit of God. And we have this tendency in Christianity to equate anything supernatural with just God. But there's another power at work who's looking to deceive us and turn us away from Christ. And that's what you see most of the time. And I'm not trying to condemn anybody, but most of the time you see. Um, these things being used to direct the focus away from Christ and what he has done and put it on us and what we are doing. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the overemphasis on spiritual gifts is dangerous. And, and there's a there's a, another aspect or facet of that, I suppose I could talk about just a little bit. And that is, um, you know, in modern Christianity, your best life now, you know, we have a yeah. An account, I was going to say story, but it really did happen in the 11th chapter of John, where 
Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But, you know, and what greater miracle could there be than Lazarus, mm-hmm. who's in the dead, who's in the grave? And it says, don't go near him. His sister, Martha or Mary, I don't remember which one, says, don't go. You know, his body's stinking already. He's decaying. Yeah, he's, he's been in the grave that long. Mortis has set in. Yes. Yeah. And he, what greater miracle could there be? But Lazarus had to die again. Lazarus yes. died. And he's you know, dead right. to this day. Yes, dead to this day. But what is the greatest thing in, in the 10th chapter, the previous chapter of John there, 10th chapter, it says, I came to give life and to give it more abundantly. So the best life is not now, but the best right. life is that life in which the world to come. is given to us in the world to come through the redemption of, of Jesus Christ. That's where I believe the power of the spirit works, that it points to Jesus and it testifies over and over again. The Verse that I would read for this. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Okay. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit that bears witness. The spirit bears witness of Christ because the spirit is truth. Now, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Well, John writes that the spirit is also truth. Testifying of Jesus. Amen. And I believe wholeheartedly that God will work miracles when and where he pleases. Yes. Yes. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, that, that like, uh, signs and wonders. We, I, um, had this time in my life where I was praying for God to give me a sign. And it's kind of, it's kind of weird because Hezekiah in the old Testament prays for a sign and God gives him one. Um, but that, that shouldn't be our, um, basis point because Jesus speaks to this issue. And what he says is a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after signs. And he says, no sign will given you save for the sign of Jonah, that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish or belly of the fish for three days, so will the son of man be in the belly of the earth. And, um, you know, we, we, we tend to think that, well, if people would just see a miraculous healing or a miraculous resurrection, or if they would, we could prove the gift of tongues, then everybody would believe because there would be no denying it. Um, but we kind of forget that Jesus did those very same things and they sure. killed him. And, and so signs and wonders do not create faith. And we all have special experiences where we believe that God answered our prayer, <coughs> um, where he answers our prayer or comes through for us in a miraculous way. And that is good and right. But the problem comes in when we start thinking that our faith is based on those things. Because the sunset is not always going to appear at the perfect time. The wind's not always going to blow on our face at, at the perfect time. Our emotions about experiences aren't always going to be the same. These things are shifting and changing. And our faith cannot rest on experiences that fade with memory. Our faith rests completely and utterly on the word of God, on what it says. And it is unchanging. And most importantly, it's for you that Jesus was given up for our offenses, that he was raised again for our justification. Um, that that is the basis of faith. These signs and wonders and miracles, they're, they're well and good for people here when God works in those ways to help them. Um, but they don't endure to eternal life. Um, the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is what we prize above all. And there's this sad trend. And I think this is why, why creeds are so important. There's this sad trend to try and discount the things that we would consider mundane and religious, like the creeds like the liturgies, like the lectionary, the, the normal workings of the church are mundane. And so they're boring. And we want to chase after the more exciting things because we think that's going to show real progress in the church. 
Um, but really the best thing that we can do for people that's even more miraculous than healing their legs or healing their cancer is preach God's word to them, is present Jesus Christ to them, is um, preach him and him alone, that they would believe and be saved and that they would endure to eternal life. Because like you said, Lazarus, he died. Mm -hmm. And he's going to be raised again on the last day, along with all of us. Um, so I don't want to make it, I don't want to conclude here by making it seem like we're poo-pooing on people who believe differently than us but these are important because they're they're real things that we don't always get faced with and we have to hold up god's word as the highest thing as our treasure um, because what does jesus say where your treasure lies that is where your heart is also I don't know if, um, is there anything you'd like to add in closing, Phil? I think we're kind of at the end of our questions and coming down to the end of time. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's been fine. I think as you were speaking there, I just was looking at the meaning there of that third article and it says the Holy ghost has called me by the gospel. You know, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And, and, uh, I think that points us back to the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and, Wow, what what firmer foundation could we be upon than than that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's it in closing for me. Yeah, and, and um, this faith isn't something um, that we come to by our own reason or strength. No. It's not that I decided to follow Jesus. It's not that I made a decision for him. It's that he made a decision for me. We love him because he first loved us. Dan, is there anything you'd like to add in closing? Um, not particularly, I think. Well, thank you so much, guys, for joining us. This has been a pleasure. I look forward to having each of you on again in the future. You're welcome. God's mm -hmm. peace to both of you. Yeah. And God's all of you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Um, this episode was brought to you by the Eastern Mission. So thank you, Eastern Mission, for sponsoring us. Of course, our goal is to become a listener-supported um, endeavor. So if you'd like to consider supporting us, you can do so by clicking on the Patreon link in the description. Now may the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the communion and fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen. So until next time, God's peace.